All right, so today we are going to be in First and Second Kings, First and Second Kings. But before we get in there, remember last week we said that these uh, books, First and Second Kings, are actually generally taken as as part two of First and Second Samuel. In other words, those four could be seen as as four consecutive books, really unfolding uh, one progressive uh, narrative. And does anybody remember the, the basic gist of what's going on in the books of Samuel and Kings? What, what's the original purpose? Who's the original reading audience? When were these first distributed together? When they're in exile in Babylon. When they're in exile in Babylon. And what's, what's, the, what's the question they're trying to answer? How do we get here? How did we get here? What went wrong? And so last week, we spent a good deal of our time, as First and Second Samuel do, on King David. Uh, David kind of takes over the narrative halfway through First Samuel, and he's going to actually carry it all the way into the opening chapters of First Kings. And David lays before us <coughs> a, a godly example of what the people of God uh, should have done in the lead up to the Babylonian exile, because he has a heart that seeks to follow the Lord wholly and in all of his ways. And by wholly, I mean entirely, completely, perfectly. And yet David also sinned, as all men do. And that's actually why I had us sing Psalm 51 today. Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance that David wrote after the events of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, where he sinned with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and even had Uriah killed. This was his psalm of repentance. This shows his remorse over his sin. This shows what true repentance looks like. And what we will see in the books of First and Second Kings, as we uh, do an overview and a survey of them today, is that by and large, the kings of Israel, the successors to David, did not do that. By and large, they were not men of repentance. They were not men who sought the heart of the Lord. And so, so the, the question is pretty clear. How did we get here? We got here by not following the good example that was laid before us in David. Uh, one scholar writes, the books of Kings, or the book of Kings, because usually these are taken as one book. Uh, the, the reason they're divided into first and second Kings, first and second Samuel, things like that, is that a single scroll to contain all of this is way too long to be of any uh, use in reading, so they often would divide it into two scrolls, but it's one book. And so he writes, the book of Kings is the last book of the former prophets, that he just means the basic historical narrative that flows in your Old Testament, completing the narrative of God's people in the land of Canaan that began in the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua. As part of the ongoing narrative, Kings traces the history of God's people from the beginning of Solomon's reign, as you'll see in the outline on the board, until the destruction and exile of the nation of Judah. As such, Kings is not only theologically rich in its own right with messages about God's justice and God's covenant, but it also gives a historical context in which to read many of the later prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And so what, what this man is saying this is William Foley. Look, he's a great um, professor at RTS. I want to say the Jackson campus, but I'm not positive. 
Uh, nonetheless, what, what he's saying is that, that kings serves many purposes. Uh, it, it tells us stories about God's justice, about his covenant, and it provides historical context with which to understand a lot of the prophets, um, a lot of the events that Jeremiah is prophesying, uh, that, that this gives the backdrop to those, historically speaking. But it's got a, a, a bigger purpose. It may be described, as he goes on, as selective and theological history writing. In other words, historical writing with a theological purpose. The purpose of which is to answer that question. How did we get into Babylon? Uh, these books cover the span of about 300 years. So clearly, this is not an exhaustive history of everything that happened for 300 years. But it's history that is true and recorded with that bent in mind, with that purpose in mind. And we find the thesis of the book of Kings in 2 Kings 17, 7 to 8. 2 Kings 17, 7 to 8. Would somebody please read that for us? And you'll notice that this thesis statement, as I've dubbed it, comes up towards the end of the book because he's been making this cumulative case. And now he's telling you this is what it's all been leading to. 2 Kings 17, 7 to 8. Mr. Johnson. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, for under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel practiced. All right. So that's the answer to the question. How did the people of God wind up in exile? Now, this is dealing specifically with the northern kingdom uh, that was trampled by Assyria. Uh, but it applies equally well to the southern kingdom. Why did this happen? Well, the, 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 the verse says, and this occurred because the people sinned against the Lord their God. What God? The God who brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh. How did they sin against him? Because they feared other gods and walked according to the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before them. In other words, they uh, are in this condition because they have broken covenant with God. The problem wasn't poor uh, political alliances, though they certainly made those. Well, actually, you can read of Solomon that the, one of the first things he does is align himself politically with Egypt. Bad move. Uh, Egypt, in the Bible, not the good guys. Uh, but it's not ultimately because of that. The problem wasn't that they had made strategic military errors, though they did that as well. Nor was the problem that, that Yahweh, the true and living God, was somehow weaker or inferior to the gods of the other nations. No, the problem was that they had broken their covenant with God. God had made them so that they might be an example to the nations, that they might be a light shining in the darkness, the original city on a hill, if you will. And instead of being an example to the nations, they had become a, a pale, unsuccessful copy of them. It's, it's interesting that, that in their efforts to be like the world, they actually became not great like they had aspired to be, but rather a really lame version of the world. Um, they, 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 they did not even achieve the success that they sought out, but they would spend pretty much the rest of their days divided and infighting and constantly being invaded. Um, it's, a, it's a sad story, but that is often what the allure of sin will do. It will, it will promise you all of these wonderful things, and it actually is destroying you. And we'll see that unfold. And So that's the, the outline I've got here of the book. 
Solomon takes up, he, he's probably the single most dominant character in the whole narrative, but he's not, the, he does not dominate the narrative, if that makes sense. He's the singular most important character, setting them up down this path. But we'll see there's there's a ton of kings that, that weave in and out through here. We're not going to cover them all, but rather just the general trajectory. And also in the middle, in the heart of the book, as it were, God sends these two great prophets, prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and we'll talk about their function when we get there shortly. But for right now, let's look at Solomon. Solomon functions as something of a, a microcosm of the whole book. He is the great picture that shows the blessings that Israel had received from the Lord. He shows the receipt of all the kindness of God. The opening chapters uh, show that there's kind of a jockeying for position uh, amongst those who would be the heir of David's throne. Uh, and, and you can read that. Uh, Adonijah uh, tries to usurp the throne. Bathsheba goes in and says, you promised it to my son Solomon, and so it is. Um, and, so, and so it goes. Uh, it goes to Solomon uh, because of the promise that, that God made through David. It's because of Solomon's promising start that the impending fall is actually so tragic. It's because of how well Solomon started off that his fall is as sad as it is. In chapter 3, the Lord asks what he should grant Solomon. And I trust you all know the passage. What does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. He asks for wisdom. And what does the Lord feel about that request? It's a good request. And he blesses him with wisdom. And what else? A child. A child, yeah. He bless, He gives him everything. He says, because you have not asked for a long life or for financial gain or all, all of these other things, but you've asked for wisdom, I will grant you wisdom and these other things on top of it. He gives him everything. Um, and, and so we see uh, Solomon get right to work in the opening chapters uh, that can be um, kind of laborious to read, but the, the, the sum of it is that Solomon is fulfilling uh, the promise that God made to David that your son will build for me a house. And chapters 4 through 7 chronicle not only the resources that Solomon had at his disposal, but the work that he engaged in to build the temple of the Lord. And we see in these chapters then that the Lord is answering his prayer to the desire of David in 2 Samuel 7, uh, wherein David desired to build a temple. And the Lord says, no, not through you, but through your son. And if you pay attention and you read these chapters later to the imagery of the temple, it's an echo of the tabernacle, which is further an echo of the garden. And so we're seeing God is, is through this temple uh, giving, giving a, a picture of the fulfillment of his promise that he would dwell with his people. Now the tabernacle, which is what they had had for so long from Exodus onward, was a, a, a mobile tent. Why? Because they were a people for the most of this time wandering in the wilderness. What does the fact that they're building a temple, brick and mortar, suggest to you? What does that tell you? Why would God change the system that had been working fine to this point and now give a temple? Chase. They're meant to stay there. They're meant to stay there. This is this is permanent. This is everlasting. They have arrived and they have received their inheritance. The kingdom has been established, and the goal is that as long as they remain faithful. This will continue forever. Uh, would somebody please read 1 Kings 8, 12 to 21? It's a longer passage. Let's actually break that up. Somebody please read 8 starting in 12 and go through 
go through 18 and then somebody ta else take 19 through the end. Francis? Then spoke Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built thee a house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel, and all the congregation of Israel stood. Then he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spoke with his mouth unto David my father, and hath with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein. But I chose David to be over my people. And it was in the heart of David my father to build the house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David my father, Whereas it is in thine heart to build in a house unto my name, thou didst well that it is in mine heart. Somebody else, 19 to 21. James. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house, but your son shall be born to you, shall build a house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Right. So, so Solomon is, is blessing the Lord and he's praising the Lord for his faithfulness. This is a good, good beginning. And, and he, he's, he's recounting the, the Lord's covenant promises that don't go just back to David one generation earlier, but go all the way back to Moses. And, and he doesn't go this far back, but you can go all the way back to Abraham and all the way back to Adam and in the garden. He's, he's praising the Lord for all that he has done so far. And he begins to just uh, pronounce this remarkable blessing. And, and I want us to imagine what it would have been like to be there. And by this, I don't mean necessarily at the temple being blessed, though that would have been a glorious sight. But remember who's reading this. Who's the first audience? Those who are in the captivity. Those who have lost all of this. And what's going through their minds? What's going through their minds? Remember, they're the original reading audience, and they're, they're hearing it read that Solomon would pray down in verse 33 of chapter 8, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, i.e. the situation they're in right now, when that happens, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive their sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you have given their fathers. Or he goes on and prays uh, later in verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn with their heart and the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul and in the land of their enemies. So earlier he said, if they repent here in your house. Well, that's gone. They've been taken away. Now he's saying, if they repent in the land of your enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I've built for your name, then hear your, 
then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Even in the middle of the Babylonian captivity, God is giving his people hope and he's giving them the, the way home. It's right here. It's true, heartfelt repentance. If the question is what went wrong, here's the answer. They neglected to seek the Lord. They did not do this. Lots of theologians will tell you that the Hebrews were taken into exile because they failed to keep the Mosaic Covenant perfectly. And there's a sense in which I'm totally comfortable with that. But we have to understand Often when we speak that way, what we're thinking is um, because they didn't you know, do the sacrifices just right or they didn't uh, tithe just right, the just right amount, or they didn't do this or that or whatever. No, the, the point is they broke the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And they broke it perpetually and, and, and unceasingly. And they continued to march in other gods after other gods. That is the way in which they broke the covenant. That's what Solomon highlights uh, in this prayer, praying that they would be forgiven should that come to pass. Um, and this still happens today, by the way. If, if you read uh, the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, that's what God essentially says to all seven of the churches. If you break your faith with me, if you bring in false gods, if you turn away from me, I will remove my lampstand from you. And we have seen this play out for 2,000 years of church history. We see this play out in denominations in, in our country all the time. Those who, who, who cease to be faithful to the Lord and instead bring in other things to take his place, they get swallowed up. I, I gave this illustration in a sermon not long ago. There is a, um, a seminary up in New York. That's, it's Union Theological Seminary. And uh, it was founded by good conservative confessional Presbyterian men. And it was a good faithful seminary for several years. And then they started to doubt the reliability of the Bible. Maybe it's not the authoritative word of God. And then they started to doubt the, the basic general teachings of the Bible. Like maybe Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead. And then they started to doubt other things and other things and other things to the point that a couple of years ago, I think I've told you guys this before, at their chapel service, at this seminary, the whole service was around repenting to plants for the evils that they had committed against creation by, you know, driving gasoline cars and putting smog. In. I'm not making that up. You can look it up. Union Theological Seminary, New York, repenting to plants. Because they had denied the true God, they worshipped creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans chapter 1. And Solomon's prayer tells us that even when churches, now I don't think our church is in danger of this, but even uh, for you guys to hold on to in the future, churches that, that, that will repent and will turn to the Lord, he will have them back again. And you as individual Christians, should you backslide, should you find yourself in the muck and the mire, this is the way back. This is the way back. Repentance and faith from the heart. Now, the divided kingdom. <clears throat> this is obviously, and by far, the, the longest section of the book. It covers a little over, like I said earlier, 300 years of history and introduces a, a rapid-fire succession of kings. 
But let's spend a little bit of time in chapter 12 and see exactly how it is that the kingdom is divided. So Solomon uh, walks astray from the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to break up the kingdom, but I'm not going to do it under your watch for the sake of David, your father. But it will happen. And this is how it happens. Uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 12. Well, I'll read that in a moment. Let me set it up. So Jeroboam, or Rehoboam rather, is, is the new king. And you guys probably know this passage, but for the sake of those who, who might not, um, the people come to Rehoboam and they say, uh, your father Solomon was very hard on us. Could you maybe lighten the load a little bit? And Rehoboam consults with his elders. And the elders say, if you want these people to love you and serve you faithfully all of your days, be kind and gracious to them. Uh, uh, try and accommodate this. He says, that sounds good. And then he calls in his friends who are as young and inexperienced as himself. And what do they say? Ratchet it up. Teach these guys who's boss. And so he says, he calls the people in on the third day and he says, come again to me the third day. This is verse 12, verse 13. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old man had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Abijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. In other words, because of the folly of this man, the people are going to revolt, they're going to split, and all but the tribe of Judah are going to go after uh, Jeroboam another son of Solomon who was not the rightful king. And Judah is going to stay with Rehoboam. And the point is this. Because Solomon divided his heart, because Solomon as the son of David, as the king who would build the temple, divided his passions, so God would divide his kingdom. And they would both follow after idolatry. Uh, the first thing that Jeroboam does is he sets up golden calves at the edge of his boundary. Why does he do that? Because Rehoboam has the capital. Rehoboam has the temple. And if the people of Israel are going to worship God, he doesn't want them to go into Rehoboam's territory. He wants them to stay into his. So he builds false idols of the true God. Does that make sense? He builds false representations of the true God, and so they would descend into idolatry, and Rehoboam doesn't fare much better uh, throughout the throughout the time. And, and so the author is seeking to tell us that these narratives preserve the clash of the most powerful kings with God's most powerful prophets. That's this is I skipped ahead in my notes. I'm sorry. In response to this idolatry, God sends these prophets Elijah and Elisha. They come on the scene pretty shortly thereafter. This all happens. In chapters 12 to 14, and they pop up at the end of chapter 16. And, and what, what's happening is they are calling uh, the people to repentance. They're calling specifically the kings to repentance. To repentance. And these narratives uh, chronicle for us the clash of the most powerful kings with God's most powerful prophets. And these clashes are emblematic of the question of the entire book. Will the kings of Israel and Judah be faithful to the Lord according to his word? Or will they seek after their own way? 
Will they honor the Lord, or will every man do what is right in his own eyes? That's the theme that has been coming up week and week and week since the book of Judges. And, of course, we know how that turns out. They do not. Well, with the time we have left, uh, that's way too brief a treatment of these men, but, but that's the, the overall thrust of what both of these guys are doing, is over and over again showing that the Lord is God, the Lord is the rightful king, and not these, not these false gods that others have gone out after. Um, let's look at the fall of the kingdoms uh, in chapters 11 to 25 of 2 Kings. Uh, this is the question the Hebrews in exile are, are meant to be asking themselves. How in the world could we have been so foolish? The answer is that they did not love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. They had given themselves over to false worship of false gods like, like Baal. Baal was the fertility god who promised to provide material abundance and uh, excessive sexual fulfillment. That's what the people wanted. That's what they cared for. It did not matter that time and time and time again they were shown that this doesn't work. That is what they loved and so that is what they did. I tell you guys over and over and over again, it is important that you make conscientious, intentional efforts to, to build up in your heart love for God and to to build up also hatred for sin because primarily we are a people who do what we love more than what we know. Primarily people do more what they love than what they know to be true. And this is what the people wanted. They wanted what Baal promised them even though they had seen like everyone knows I'm sure the story with, with Elijah in 1 Kings 18 and the false prophets and, and he says let's set up two sacrifices and whichever one fire rains down from heaven and consumes, that's the sacrifice to the true God. Baal, being also not just the God of fertility, but also the God of storms and thunder, should have very easily been able to shoot down some lightning and light his sacrifice on fire. And it didn't happen. Because he's not a true God. And yet people still persist in the idolatry and rebellion. That's why. Because God wants to contrast uh, his promises and provisions uh, to, and, and, and bring them to them. The world will promise you everything you desire. And the world's promises are about you, but they're not for you. They're about you, but they're not for you. Uh, I think often of, of guys like uh, Tom Brady. What more does he possibly have to prove? And yet he's willing to sacrifice and give up his marriage and his time with his kids and all this stuff so that he can get... What number ring? Seven, eight, so a lot. Yeah. He's willing to give up on his marriage and his kids to pursue just one more because it's never enough. It'll never satisfy you. Even if you get what you're pursuing apart from God, it will never satisfy. But the promises of God, which are not about you, are for you. The promises of God and his own glory and the gospel of the Son, that he will be your God and you will be his people, that is about him and his goodness and his grace and his kindness that so many people find boring, and yet it is the message of life that is for you. It's the complete opposite of the world. Israel and the northern tribes continued to pursue the promises of false gods until they were utterly destroyed, and they never came back. They never returned. 
when 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 people talk about the return to Canaan from exile, it's Judah that comes back. Israel is wiped off the map. The northern tribes, that is. They never really came back. They've become mixed in and diluted with the other nations of their captors to the point of being erased. Judah also persisted in rebellion until the Lord sent them into exile as well. But as we'll see with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther in the coming weeks, they are brought back because they saw their wicked, their wicked ways. They repented and they cried to the Lord just as Solomon prayed they would. And as I said earlier, that is always the way home. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, we thank you for your word and the, the truth that it tells and the warnings that it gives. And I pray, Father, for these young people here that they would be actively seeking in their lives daily to cultivate a love for you and a hatred of falsehood. Lord, I pray that, that you would bless them and keep them and make your face shine upon them. Be merciful to them and grant them peace. I ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.